All right, if you take your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. I had mentioned this psalm uh, last week, I think it was, last Sunday night, but we didn't attend to it, and I think we really need to, to get into the text. We are going to try to cover two chapters, but the two chapters are not going to need much explanation. Not much at all. I would rather set more of a background to the, two, the writing of those two chapters uh, for, to actually get our application and to get our, our benefit out of it. So Psalm chapter 2, please. We're going to look at two psalms before we get into Isaiah 21. Psalm chapter 2. Here's the question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? All right, I want you to vision right now all of the countries in the world. Go all across Asia. You can name them. You can even think of them. You've got um, China. You've got Russia. You've got Japan. You've got all of the countries. You go from the east, the far east, to the Middle East, and then you go to all the Middle East. You can go down up to Europe. You can go down to Africa and South Africa. And then you can cross the Atlantic Ocean. You come to Canada, and you come to the United States of America, and then you can come to Central America, and then South America. And then you can go to all the Pacific Islands. And you, you can look at all the nations. And the question is, in Psalm 2, why are these nations raging? Why are they furious? Why are they angry? And why are they plotting together? Why are they conspiring? Well, there's only one answer why they're conspiring. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 to a man named Nimrod. I introduced you to Nimrod quite a few weeks ago. But Nimrod in chapter 10 of Genesis is the first man that we understand wanted to become a global dictator. He wanted to become the Hitler of the day. He wanted to control all of planet Earth. The Bible says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter facing after the Lord. The idea of mighty hunter, again, is not hunting elk and deer with a bow and arrow or something like that. No, he was a hunter, meaning he wanted to hunt God and kill God. He went face to face with God. And if Nimrod had the ability... He would have killed God and taken over all control and all authority. Of course, that could never happen because our God is all-powerful. But Nimrod, in Genesis 10, builds a kingdom. And the name of that kingdom is Babylon. So Babylon goes all the way back to the far reaches of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10. And this kingdom of Babylon has always been set against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Nimrod, energized by Satan, sought to get every nation to turn against God. And he was very successful. So the Tower of Babel comes into play, and the tower is built, and God comes down and scatters all the nations with different languages, and now we all speak different languages, so there's no unification of the whole world. But they're trying. They're trying to unify the world, aren't they? With a global currency and global languages and all sorts of things. This is all part of Satan's plan to overthrow God. So the nations are raging, and the people are plotting a very vain thing. They want to kill Jesus. They want to kill him dead and leave him dead forever. Of course, it's not going to happen. By the way, we already covered in Isaiah 13 the fall of Babylon, which is going to happen in the future. Babylon is still around today. Babylon, so you know, is Iraq. It's the land of Iraq. Of course, the Babylonian spirit is in every nation, but Babylon is, is today modern Iraq. Okay, And this country is going to play a huge role in the future. But what we do understand is in the future of our life, this kingdom is going to rise up, Babylon is going to rise up, and it will seek to rule the world with the Antichrist at at her helm. And God in Revelation 17 and 18 will drop that nation, he says, in one day. It will take only one day to drop this major world empire in the future. 
It tells me our God is pretty powerful. He, is, he not only knows what he's doing, he can do whatever he wants. So here's Psalm chapter 2 again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Well, they're energized by Satan to kill the Lord. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers, they take counsel together. Why? Against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're not just against God the Father. They are against the Messiah, God the Son. Here's what they're saying. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We want to destroy God completely, entirely. Break their bonds. We want no accountability to God. We don't ever want to face him. We don't ever want to see him. We don't want any part of him in our, in our life and our, our culture. Look at God's response in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, he shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So he's up there saying, oh, little people. You little people with your little itty-bitty weapons of mass destruction. You come against me? He laughs and he holds them in derision. And then it says this, verse 5, He shall speak to them in his wrath, in his anger. All he does is speak. Zechariah 14 says the Lord speaks when he returns to planet earth and the nations that are assembled against him will dissolve People's eyes will dissolve in their eye socket. They will literally disintegrate in front of the glory of God. Second Thessalonians also says that when he comes with his burning, fiery presence, he will simply put to ash all of rebellious mankind. This is our God. So he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will distress them in his deep displeasure. Verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Who's the holy, well, what Zion is Jerusalem. Who's the king that God has set on the holy hill of Zion? Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, our Savior. God says, no matter what you do, no matter how you rage, no matter what you plot, Jesus will sit on the throne. It it is a guarantee and nobody can stop it. So I'll tell you what, listen, everybody, tonight you are either on the Lord's side or you're not. You are either on the Lord's side for ultimate victory because you're a child of his, or You are in rebellion against him with the rest of the nations, and we suffer the same fate. Now, it says this in verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. So now the Father is speaking to the Son. It's almost like we can pull back the curtain of heaven, and we listen to a personal dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. Now, my dad is here tonight. There's many conversations we've had in the past, and you could almost want to listen in and say, oh, what is Jerry Wheata saying to Brian? And he might be saying, son, get out there and restack the wood, because the first time you did it, it wasn't quite straight. Then he, praise the Lord, he taught me how to stack a good pile of wood, so my stacks don't fall over. But that's what my dad taught me. He was instructing me. He was giving me decrees. He'd say, mow the yard, do this, whatever. I mean, he, he would give me decrees. So here's what the Father says to, to Jesus, the Son. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. All right, what is this? Real quick, this phrase, today I have begotten you, it is used in Acts 13, not for the virgin birth, not for the fact that Jesus was created because he wasn't. He is the uncreated God. The very fact that the Father would say, you are my Son, Today I have begotten you. It's used in Acts 13 for the resurrection. Jesus came. He died on the cross, paid for the sins of all humanity. He was buried, and on the third day, his lifeless body rose from the grave. And on that day, God the Father said, You have accomplished my perfect will. You are the king that will be set on the holy hill of Zion. You are my son. And today, you are raised up from the dead, never to die again. That's the way it's used in Acts 13. You can check it out on your own. Look at verse 8 quickly. Ask of me and I will give you 
the nations for your inheritance. That's almost like that's now the father saying, son, ask me anything and I will give it to you. Even all the nations. Now, can you imagine if I went to my dad and I said, dad, oh, I really want a million bucks. You know, if my dad had it, he might choose to give it to me. Right. But this is what the father says to the son. Ask of me anything you want, my son. And Jesus will say, give me all of the nations and I will inherit them. And the father says, they're yours. But in order to inherit the nations, what does he have to do? He has to put down every rebellious nation. If they rebel against him, they go down. If, they, if individuals in the, in the nation believe in Jesus, he will raise them up. So now what, we, what I've been preaching for the last few weeks, chapters 13 through 23 of Isaiah, God takes nation after nation and he puts them down and is full of judgment and harshness. And we've walked through every single chapter, every single verse up until 21 now. But at the end of the text, in some nations, there rises up a remnant of believers and God says, yes, you can enter into the kingdom. So even though there's a lot of judgment in these chapters, yet there's great blessing with believers from every nation. Not, a ma- not many, but a few. And listen, praise the Lord that in the United States of America, although this nation is being judged by God, I believe, uh, because we have turned from the Lord, yet look here, there's a remnant of believers eagerly, just like Isaiah chapter 8, gathering together to hear the word, to be discipled, and to serve the Lord. So he says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Why? Because they are rebellious. So God has to, Jesus has to break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Hey, a potter's vessel is nothing but dried clay. He's going to take a nation like Babylon or tonight, Tyre. He's going to pick it up, boom, drop it like, you know, I've got clay pots in my, in my office. I found the bottom of a clay pot from the Sea of Tiberias, walking on the, by the Sea of Tiberias, not on the sea, I wish, walking by the Sea of Tiberias in Israel. I found this ancient bottom of a clay pot, pulled it up, and it was really cool. And it was just sitting right on the surface because there was a low tide or a, a, a drought season. And uh, Uzi, a friend of mine, he said, ooh, this is, is very nice. It's, it's very, very old. And, and then what did I do? I broke it accidentally. I mean, it was so fragile. I didn't realize how fragile those things are, but boom, it just broke. It didn't even take any effort to, to break a nation like a potter's vessel. It is, it's no effort for Jesus. He just simply does it, and he will do it like we've seen in Isaiah 13 through 23. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Here's the counsel. God says, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Reverence him. And rejoice with trembling. So you reverence him. You give him high, high regard. Verse 12, kiss the son, meaning to give him homage. To kiss the son means you acknowledge him as your savior. You bow before him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. There's only one way of salvation. For any of the nations, for any of the individuals, it is to kiss the Son, it is to pay homage to him. It is to bow in submission to, to Jesus for salvation, lest you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. How, hey, if you have a little piece of fresh or a, a really dry birch bark and a few little dry twigs, you put a little match to it, how long does it take for that to go up in flames? Boom. When his wrath is kindled just a little, it, just, it will take just seconds. All right. Blessed are, those who, blessed are those who put their trust in him. All right, and then quickly, Psalm 110. 
I told you this is going to be a long setup, which means Isaiah 21 and 23 have to be pretty quick. Uh, Psalm 110. This psalm has some beauty to it. One of the beauties of Psalm 110, it is the most quoted passage in the New Testament, which tells me if Jesus wants us to know a psalm, out of all the psalms, out of all the Old Testament texts, which one do you think we might study? I would say we need to put some time into Psalm 110. We won't do it tonight, but we we should. We ought to. Here's what it says in Psalm 110. The Lord, okay, first of all, who's writing it? David. King David, the shepherd boy who became a king, he writes this. Here's what he says. The Lord said to my Lord, okay, the Lord is God the Father, said to my Lord, who is David's Lord? It is Jesus who is David's own physical seed because Mary came from David. And so David could say, although my great, 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 14 times, grandson at least, although he will be the Messiah, he is my child, yet he is my Savior, he is my Lord. So David knew that his future descendant would also be God. So David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that's the ascension, until he does what? until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus has to conquer every nation. Every single nation has to be conquered by Jesus before he can finally say that he's done with his work. Do you all agree? How many nations, are, how many enemies are going to be his footstep, footstool? All of the enemies will be his footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Here's what he says. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus has to set up his kingdom In the midst of the enemies, which means as a good king, he's got to put all the enemies down. Verse 3, your people shall be volunteers. Who are his people? Who are God's people? We are. We are in verse 3. Your people shall be volunteers, which means you don't get into Jesus' army by force. He doesn't draft believers. He simply says, you're a believer, join my army. And we're going to say, yes, Lord, here I am. I will do anything. I will serve you with my whole life. My time, my talents, my treasures, they are yours. I have nothing of my own. You created me. You redeemed me. I have nothing that I could claim as my own. So my life is yours. So believers shall be volunteers in the day of his power in the beauties of his holiness from the womb of the morning. The womb of the morning? Of course, the womb is the, the kind of the freshness and the zeal and the beginning of life. So as soon as Jesus comes back to earth as the sun that, brights, that shines brightly in the midst of a dark world, So we are going to be volunteering, and we're going to be there in the strength of the day when he comes back. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn, and he will not relent. It's an oath that is unchangeable. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek meaning he has no beginning and no end, meaning no successor. There's no other king that we're going to wait for after Jesus. It is only Jesus. Melchizedek, there was no other priest that followed him. Because he had no genealogy. If you were a Levite, you always had a priest after you. Your next son would be the priest. Then his son would be the priest. Then his son would be the priest. For Jesus, there is no other. There's, he is the only king. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall, listen to this, execute kings in the day of his wrath. This is what Jesus is going to do. Execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Now, I wish we had time to get into all of that. We don't. But what does it say in this great psalm of victory? 
Jesus has to put down every nation. And if he doesn't, then he's not God, then he's not our king, and he's not worthy to sit on the throne. So he has to come back and deal with every disobedient nation. Now go with me to Isaiah 21. As we finish this section of Isaiah, the first five chapters of Isaiah were all introduction. The next section was the book of Emmanuel, all the prophecies of the baby Jesus and what he was going to do someday. And then chapters 13 through 23, Jesus is found executing his judgment on every nation. And out of every nation comes a few little, uh, few little people, uh, little groups of believers. Praise the Lord that... In every little tiny nation of this world, you could find a believer or two. God's gospel is very powerful, very powerful. So here we are, Isaiah 21. This is a burden against the wilderness of the sea. Well, what is the wilderness of the sea? It is Babylon. It is Iraq. This is another judgment against Iraq. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. This distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pains have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. All right, this is a judgment against Babylon. Babylon being the kingdom of of Nimrod set against Jesus. And Isaiah gets a picture of this gigantic kingdom with all the wealth, with the military might, with the best military leaders, the best presidents and prime ministers, and the, the whole world blindly following them. And, and Isaiah watches the whole thing that he longs for. He really wants to see Babylon go down. But when it goes down, it is frightful. The Bible says, in the future days of tribulation, Islands like the Hawaiian Islands are going to sink deep into the sea. Mount Everest is going to plummet. The Rocky Mountains are just going to fall like they become the plains of North America instead of the Rocky Mountain Ridge. And this whole earth is going to be torn apart. We're going to see in two weeks, Isaiah 24, this earth is going to, right now it's going on its axis. Praise the Lord, we're tilting toward the sun. We're going to get some of that heat from the sun soon. And um, we're tilting back and forth like this. The Bible says the earth is going to, in Isaiah 24, totter like a drunk going down the street. Very quickly, God's going to like just throw this planet around the outer space. Oh, it's going to be days of great trial. And Isaiah sees this and he, he thinks, I am absolutely afraid, fearful of God's power and God's wrath. Listen, for those who are not believers, uh, like I talk to not, other people that aren't believers all the time, and they kind of scoff, and they're like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I know what you mean. I know what you I know. I, I don't need him, though, and I don't want him. And, that, and I'm like, you don't have any idea of the wrath to come. You don't know. If Jesus can do this to nation Babylon, what he does to unbelievers as he puts them in a lake of fire, it is just not worth it. It is not worth it to, to make fun of the Lord. There's such fearfulness and dismay. It's like he's a, like a woman in pain, labor pains. This is how he feels. I think Isaiah's gut is just wrenching as he watches this unfold. Verse 5, prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise, you princes, anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said to me, go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. He, sees a, he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, a chariot of camels. He listened earnestly with great care. Then he said, a lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have, set, I, I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men and a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and he said, Babylon has fallen, is fallen. 
All the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Babylon, who serves the gods of sex and violence and pleasure of the world, not one of them could help in the time of need. When people have needs, where do they turn? They turn to the bottle, they turn to drugs, they turn to whatever the world offers to to satisfy somebody who's aching and lonely and brokenhearted or whatever. In the day of tribulation, of course, they will run to those things, but there is no help. There's, there, even today, there's no help for those things. There's only a temporary fulfillment, and that isn't even good. It just leaves the person even worse. But it's going to be, um, they're going to chase after their carved images of gods that they have worshipped, and they will not, one will be able to help. And yet they will not turn to Jesus. They will not believe in him. So Isaiah says in verse 10, Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor... I think the threshing and the grain on my floor is Israel. Oh, we, listen, it's almost seven. We don't have time to cover this, but can I tell you something really cool? In, in uh, Amos 9, I think it is. Amos chapter 9. I think it's Amos 9, 9, actually. It's right around there, where God says, believers are like grain on a threshing floor. The grain, you would take a winnowing fork after you thresh the wheat on a rock, up on a high hill, and when it was really windy, kind of like maybe today was windy, you would take that grain and you would throw the grain and the chaff up in the air, and the wind would catch all the chaff and, and blow the chaff off the flat rock, and the good grain that is heavy would drop right down at your feet. But you know what Amos 9 says? The believers are the good grain, and not one grain will be missing from the barn. Not one, God is not going to lose one believer without everything going on in the future. Seven billion people on the earth, I lose myself. I don't even know where I'm going sometime. And yet God knows every believer, and he is keeping track of every believer on earth, and every single person who trusts Jesus will be safely in heaven someday, not one exception. This is a whole, and so I think Isaiah is saying, Israel, you are God's threshing floor and good grain. It's a, really, it's a compliment. It's, it's, like you're, it's a great compliment. So if you want to call somebody a good compliment, say, man, you are like a threshing floor with grain on it. They would look at you strange, but it really means a good thing. That which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. But now look at the next proclamation, verse 11 and 12. This is against Edom. You know what Edom is? It's the country of Jordan with King Abdullah right now. The country of Jordan. The middle section is Moab. And he says... Um, I'm sorry, Edom. Edom is the southern part of, of Jordan. The burden against Duma, he calls to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Well, what's this all about? Well, here's what it is. I have to speed this along. The watchman is like this. I don't know if you've ever worked night jobs. I used to work down at, when I was at the seminary at Faith Baptist Bible College. I worked for RPS and I worked midnights. I loaded uh, trucks, uh, uh, RPS trucks, like kind of like UPS, and I had to put all the things in order. And when I started the shift, it was like midnight, and I didn't get done until 7. And I would be like, night, night, when will you be done? When will it be over so I can, I can see the daylight and get on with my day? You know, it's just the night seems to go on, especially, and I've never been in battle, but I think nighttime battles... You are like, when will this night be over? When will the day finally dawn and we can be done with this fighting? And the watchman comes back and says, when the, fight, when the night is over, the fighting really has just begun. You're, you're not out of it yet. There's still a lot of judgment to come. So people in the future, they're going to be like, wow, I can't go through another battle. Uh, you know, believers are going to be hunted by the unsaved. 
and executed in the future. That's what the Bible says in Revelation. Believers are going to be martyred for their faith because we don't take the mark of the beast. And we're going to cry out, and people in Edom are going to cry out, when will this night be over so the day will come? And the answer is, you got a long time to wait. The night, when the night is over, it's still going to be hard on you. The, when the morning, verse 12, when the morning comes, it's also like night. The fighting's not over. The running's not over. What do you do? You repent. You just go to the Lord. Look at the next one against Arabia, verse 13. The burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanites. Now, Arabia is down in, of course, Saudi Arabia. And I was down in the Wadi Rum region, uh, the northern part of Saudi Arabia. We were actually in Jordan, but that whole desert there. So I've traveled a little bit on a camel caravan through the Wadi Rum desert. I can almost picture this. You've got companies of, of uh, travelers going through the, the um, the, the land of Arabia, O inhabitants of the land of Tima, bring water to him who thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, bow, and from the distress of war. All right. So then there's going to be a message from God. Within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of, ink, of uh, archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. Even Saudi Arabia... The Saudi Arabians, the Arabs, they will seek to be out of this battle. They cannot escape from Jesus. They can't. Because Jesus is coming to execute and to bring about righteousness on all the earth. So no nation is without exception. And I don't know what the U.S. is going to do in the future. I have no clue what happens in the future for the U.S. But if we were around, there'd be a chapter for us. God would say, woe to the U.S. You have turned from me. You have rebelled against me. And... Um, God was only going to exalt those who believe in him. And then quickly go over to chapter 23. This, again, is a burden against Tyre. I think I'm going to save this for maybe our Wednesday evening service and ministry. Because I do want to go through every chapter of Isaiah, but 66 chapters is a big task. But we're on, looking at chapter 23, this is against Tyre, and I'll tell you quickly what happens. Tyre was known for one thing, Wealth. If Babylon, if Babylon was known for one thing, it was military might. They could crush anybody. You know what Tyre is known for? Wealth. They were on a seaport. Actually, we can think of Lebanon. This is current-day Lebanon. On a seaport, they would have ships going across the Mediterranean Sea to Spain. Tarshish is Spain. Back and forth. They'd go down to Egypt, back and forth, and they had wealth beyond measure. But in the day of the coming of Jesus, wealth means nothing. You can't buy your way out of judgment. Do you agree? Tyre can't go, oh, Jesus, you're coming to kill us? Hey, we've got some gold in our treasury. We've got things coming from Spain. We've got spices and grain from Egypt. Take those things and let us off the hook. No way. Tyre is going to fall with all of their commercial wealth. And therefore, Spain and Egypt are going to weep. Why? Because money will mean nothing. And all they invested their whole life in was money. And in the end, they're going to be destroyed and their money will not help. As a matter of fact, verse 18. Yes, verse 18. You know what verse 18 says? The wealth of Tyre is going to end up where? Well, I better read it. Her gain and her pay, that's the wealth of Tyre, will be set apart for God, the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord. Wait a minute, where is all of Tyre's wealth going to go? To the Lord and to the Lord's believers. So I love this. 
Doesn't God have a sense of humor? All these nations who have racked up wealth and military might, he drops in one day. And he comes to Tyre and he says, Tyre, you've got such wealth. You are greedy to the core and I'm going to judge you for it. And I'm going to take all of your wealth and I'm going to bring it all the way into Jerusalem. And there the Lord will get it. He's going to get the wealth of all the nations, by the way. How much does the Lord own? Everything. He owns everything. There's not one thing that you have. There's not one thing you'll eat tomorrow that does not have God's ownership written all over it. And for you to eat it, to drink it, or to use it without glorifying his name is robbery. Right? If God owns everything and I don't thank him for it, then I'm saying, God, I don't care if you're here or not. This is mine. I'm going to enjoy it for my own, for my own use. He has every right to call me a thief and a robber and deal with me. Praise the Lord, I'm his child. And he, he won't treat me like that as his child. But listen, we better take seriously this whole issue of wealth and materialism. We are living in a sickly, gross, materialistic, possessive world. God looks at our nation and he says, what wealth you have. You, are, you remember how James says it? You've got fancy garments that are rotting in your closets and you go and buy more when there's people that are naked out there. He's like, shame on you. That's the whole idea. And Tyre, God's, God says in verse 18, all of the wealth of Tyre is going to come into Jerusalem and it, Jesus is going to own it. It's going to have his name on it. This belongs to Jesus. And then he's going to say, all right, children, you need some? Help yourself. Wow. Of course, we're going to be in glorified bodies so there'll be no greed and there'll be no misuse of his wealth. We'll use it for his glory. We'll say, thank you, Jesus. Let's use this for his glory and honor. Let's get the gospel out to the rest of the millennial kingdom. It's going to be phenomenal. Don't you agree? All right, so here, here are my final points. If I can find my notes. All right, here it is. Listen carefully. Here are some truths. Because I do want to move on in, uh, to Isaiah 24 in two weeks here. God has the sovereign power to rule over every nation. That's what we learn. Secondly, I have learned that God has a plan for every nation. Every single nation, because he lists many of them right around Israel in the Middle East, every single nation, God has a plan and a purpose for. Do you think God had a purpose for the U.S. when he established us some 200 years ago with our founding fathers, breaking free for religious liberty, a place where there would be freedom, a a place where there would not be an oppressive government, A, a, a small government with lots of freedoms, was the intent. And I think God had a great plan for this nation. And we have allowed it to fall into corruption with wicked rulers. We have. Rulers that have kicked God out of our, uh, out of our schools and out of our courts. They have, they have shoved his word out of public life. Shame on us. God has a plan for our nation as well. We don't know all that it entails. I pray... God's grace would be shed upon our nation because of believers like you and I, living righteously. Here's something else I learned. God will crush everyone who opposes him. Anybody who opposes God, they're crushed. Think of that this week as you go about your work because I run into believers all this, I mean non-believers all the time, and I think someday if they do not choose Christ, they will be crushed. And I don't say that lightly. Um... It's an awful thing to think about. 
Next, he will bring salvation to his people Israel and to other Gentiles who believe. So God's salvation is available to everybody from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Many of them will come and establish and and be worshipers of God in the future. And I can tell you this right now. Even as we speak, God is working in every single nation. He's working in our nation, in our city. He's working in every nation. Do you believe that? Those little islands where there's just natives, maybe deep in the heart of Africa, some of those African tribes, that one, tri- that one church last July when I was in that African church, uh, I think there were 42 different tribes represented. Or there were many tribes represented. I, we don't know even all the, but God is working all over the world because he shows us he is in these chapters. So we have a great God, and we're just watching him work. And we want to be a part of that, don't we? We want to be an exciting voluntary part of that. So we say, Lord, use me any way that we can. Send me, keep me here, do whatever, um, but use me, Father. That's what, that's what our prayer is. Father, thank you for this time in the word of God as we look at the people raging against you, your plan for the nations. We think about Babylon and Tyre, and even as we um, think about the wealth, how military might and wealth will mean nothing in the future day. People's knowledge and intellect, that will have no standing. It's faith alone. People must have faith in Jesus or they will perish in the way. So I thank you, Father, for saving some, believer, some people out of every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Help us to be active in reaching tribes and nations for Jesus. Help us to reach our own community for Jesus. Thank you, Father, so much for these very difficult texts, very hard texts to read and understand. But help us to, to love you and to put all of this into practice. May Jesus be praised. Amen.